This morning we'll be in Daniel chapter 2, beginning with verse 1 through verse 23. Uh, the sermon is going to focus on 1 through, uh, 1 through 18, and then the next sermon will focus more on 19 through 23. That said, the story didn't seem complete without including those last few verses, so there you have it. Daniel chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream. And my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there's but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. And he told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. 
He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with Him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the King's matter. This is the word of the Lord. As the Apollo 11 lunar module Eagle was descending from orbit down to the Earth's surface, some of you may know this story. This tin can is traveling thousands of miles an hour, hurtling towards the moon's surface, and every few seconds, an error message pops up on the navigation computer. And so at thousands of miles an hour and with just a a handful of minutes to make the decision, every time mission control has to decide, will we continue with the mission? Or will we abort the landing and try again next time? And yet every time they decided to continue the landing. And so can you imagine how Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong would feel? Neil Armstrong says, the concern here was whether we would continue at all, for our attention was directed toward clearing the program alarms, keeping the machine flying, and assuring ourselves that control was adequate to continue without requiring an abort. Now, during this process of landing, Neil Armstrong's heart rate was recorded at 150 beats per minute, and um, I'm, I'm no athlete, but that's how fast my heart goes when I'm running. And so can you imagine 240,000 miles away from home, floating around in a tin can, and your computer is telling you it can't do its job. But sitting in mission control was a man named Jack Garman. And he had worked on the Apollo guidance computer. And he was seeing the same error messages and readouts. And he knew that these particular alarms meant the computer was discarding less important tasks. And so he told the guidance officer to continue the descent. And on his advice, Armstrong was able to take manual control so as to ease the burden on the computer, and Apollo 11 landed on the moon as planned. Now, while the astronauts were walking on the moon... They looked into it, and they discovered that a radar switch had been turned on and was feeding spurious data to the computer, too much for it to handle. And so Mission Control simply told them, hey, could you flip that switch off, please? And they ascended from the lunar surface 20 20 hours later without a hitch. How do you remain steadfast in the trials of life? When you don't know what's going on, when you don't know how to get out of a sticky situation, when you don't have it inside yourself to know how to proceed or to know that you can proceed, how do you remain steadfast in the trials? We need something outside of us. We all come to the end of our rope. We need a confidence that we can't supply from within ourselves. You run into an ethical dilemma at work. There's no solution. Friends and family leave the faith to pursue a life far from God. 
In my own life, half my counseling visits with students make, leave me thinking, I don't think I said anything good. And uh, I don't have kids of my own, but I think my parents are getting revenge anyway as I sometimes lie sleep, sleepless if I know one of the kids is out and nobody knows where they are. Here at Westminster, we're now looking for the next man to call to be our pastor. So we look at these problems. We see what's going on in the world around us, what's going on in our own lives, and we worry. And for good reason, because these problems are so much bigger than we are. And Daniel stared down a threat even more immediate than the ones that you or I usually face because an enraged and violent king stood between him and his life. Caught in the middle was a dream that eluded the grasp of both king and fortune teller. But Daniel knew something that they didn't. For Daniel knew that there's a true God in heaven and that everything is in his hands. Every dream is known to God. Everything that happens in the waking world is known to Him. And so Daniel, or so God is able to give mercy and strength in time of need. And as we look at this episode in Babylonian court life, we see two things that distinguish Daniel from his contemporaries. We see his calm and his confidence, and we see his reliance on God that enable him to be calm and confident. And so first, faced with certain death, Daniel remains calm and he finds confidence where Nebuchadnezzar and his advisors have a very different reaction. So let's set the scene. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. Actually, it seems that he had several dreams, all the same. But we don't know what was in this dream. But we know this, it shook him deeply. Have you ever had a sleepless night? Have you ever been so troubled that you couldn't sleep? Have you ever had a few sleepless nights? We know that the king did. And the exact number is not specified, but what Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream bothered him so deeply that his sleep left him. He couldn't sleep for days, if not for weeks on end. His mind just wouldn't switch off at night the way he was accustomed to. And As all of you who've had a sleepless night know, there's that vicious cycle as your sleep-deprived mind finds it more and more difficult to quiet down and sleep. And so these dreams throw the king into such a panic that he summons his best fortune tellers, these guys with PhDs in fortune telling, and he makes his simple plea. Tell me my dream and what it means. But when the fortune tellers balk at his demand, the king's panic turns into rage. He wants a report on his dream and on its interpretation by 9 a.m. on his desk, or he wants your head. What accounts for Nebuchadnezzar's reaction? He has no confidence in his advisors. He tells them, I don't trust you. You're stalling for time. You are liars who want my doom. 
They're hoping that the times change. They're hoping for a pay raise when the next king comes into power. They're trying to save their own skins. So the only people that Nebuchadnezzar has to rely on in this matter are the people that he trusts least. Now it's nothing new for kings and political figures to distrust their advisors. Look, you're in a vulnerable position. You're a marked man. Reinhold Niebuhr observed that the drive for power is prompted by the realization that your existence is insecure. And having all the power makes you a marked man and you have a lot to lose. So you'll do whatever it takes to stay in power. There's a long tradition of powerful men making other people take the fall. From Nebuchadnezzar and his advisors, Herod and the children of Bethlehem, Richard Nixon and Bob Haldeman and John Ehrlichman. But I think we can all appreciate the position that Nebuchadnezzar was in. Because I know that you've been in a place where you've been scared to lose. You don't have to be a king to have a lot on the line. The latest round of layoffs have been announced. Your kid just got called to the principal's office again. You're waiting for medical test results. You get a text message that says, we need to talk. We all want to know what the future holds. We all want to know what's coming down the pike. We're all looking over our shoulders. And so, we also have to do our own waiting. We lose a lot of sleep over what the future may hold. And that's just for Nebuchadnezzar. You can imagine what this turn of events does to the counselors. Rightly or wrongly, Nebuchadnezzar can do something to vent his rage, but these counselors, they're in a real pickle. These guys have extensive training in telling the future. They can read the stars in the sky. They can tell you what it means when a lamb is born with two heads or five legs. They can read a a sheep's liver like you or I read Dick and Jane. And so a dream is child's play. Except you need to know the dream to understand it. And the king's lips are sealed. What the king asks is impossible, and it's going to cost them their lives. They know they cannot answer his demand. They themselves say not a man on earth is able to meet this demand, and they have nowhere to turn. And all they can do is wait as the sword dangles over their necks. And so the decree goes out. All the wise men of Babylon are to be destroyed. The police go out. They begin the roundup. And they put the wise men in chains and begin sharpening their blades to destroy them. And so the knock comes on the door of Daniel. But where Nebuchadnezzar and his counselors melt with fear, Daniel faces the executioner with calm and confidence, and he is able to act with wisdom. So when the king's captain comes to arrest Daniel, he simply says, well, what's the matter? He keeps his wits about him. And we have no hint in this text that he's afraid to learn what fate may befall him. So when he finds that the knife is pointed at his throat, he flips the script. 
He is confident to ask. Put a time on the king's calendar so I can explain the dream and its interpretation. And it's interesting to note the difference between Daniel's actions here and the way he acted in chapter 1. For in chapter 1, he and his friends refused to participate in court life by refusing to eat from the king's table. But here in chapter 2, Daniel chooses to take part. Rather than obstinately choosing to always or never participate, Daniel exercises discretion. It reminds me of these consecutive verses in Proverbs chapter 26, which alternately advise advise us to oppose a fool or not to oppose a fool. For even wisdom requires wisdom to interpret and apply. And as Daniel himself says, God gives wisdom to the wise. And what is wisdom? Wisdom is seeking after God in His ways. Psalm 111.10 The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Likewise, the word of the Lord, it says in Psalm 119.89, is able to make wise the simple. So, wisdom doesn't come from book knowledge or because you're already smart. God gives wisdom to the wise. God gives a heart to seek Him to those who seek Him. And yet hard and fast rules are in short supply. But Daniel here is able to do what's right by exercising the wisdom that God has given him. For at this time, Daniel's received no word from God about his dream. Nothing in the text tells us that he knows the situation will shape up. But there's one thing, one thing that stands out to me. Because there's one point of contact between Daniel's history as an Israelite and the Babylonian court, and that's that this time the king has received a dream. This is not a matter of interpreting omens or looking at sheep guts. It's a dream. And from time to time, the true God has been known to speak in dreams. So Daniel sees the possibility that God is indeed at work. But the deeper contrast isn't between Daniel's calm and confidence and the total lack by his counterparts. For there's nothing in Daniel that accounts for this confidence and calm and wisdom. See, the contrast is that Daniel relies on the true God, where the others have no one to rely on. So what does Daniel do when Ariok goes away? Well, he shares the situation with his friends, and together they turn to God in prayer, for they throw themselves on God's mercy. Look, Nebuchadnezzar has his wise men, but he doesn't trust them. His advisors have no true knowledge of the supernatural. They have no true God to turn to. As Isaiah 47 says, you are wearied with your many counsels. Let them stand forth and save you, those who divide the heavens, who gaze at the stars, who at the new moons make known what shall come upon you. Behold, 
They are like stubble. The fire consumes them. They cannot deliver themselves from the power of the flame. The advisors have no wisdom of their own because they don't turn to the true God. And they cannot turn to their gods because their gods, they say, don't dwell with flesh. And of course, we know their gods don't dwell at all. For Isaiah 46 mocks the gods, saying, Bell bows down, Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. They lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales. Hire a goldsmith, and he makes it into a god. Then they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place, and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. But Daniel has the true God to rely on. Daniel knows the God who knows all dreams and knows all the future. For as Daniel says, he removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what's in the darkness and the light dwells with him. And as I said, in the next sermon, we'll study this prayer of praise in more detail. But for now, suffice it to say that Daniel's God is no statue. Daniel's God is not a figment of his imagination. Daniel's God has everything in his hands. He is able to be there for his people. And so Daniel trusts him and praises him. The wise men of Babylon have no access to the true God or any other God. But Daniel comes to the true God to seek mercy. And just as Daniel told his friends to seek mercy from the God of heaven, you too can seek mercy from the God of heaven. For as Peter writes, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Or as Paul writes in Philippians, the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, offer your requests to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. But how? I'm no Daniel. Some of y'all think I'm pretty smart, but I'm no Daniel. And you know in your heart that you're no Daniel too. The wise men of Babylon spoke better than they knew when they said the dwelling place of the gods is not with man. It's true. The true God does not dwell with man. But we don't call upon God by being a Daniel. We call upon God by the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the true God does make his dwelling place with man. As it says in John chapter 1 that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we, we beheld him. He dwelt among us. He is full of grace and truth. 
the Holy Spirit makes us a dwelling place for God with Christ as our cornerstone. He unites us to God. And as the writer to the Hebrews says, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. For as our high priest, Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice to pay the penalty for your sins. And you deserve the same fate as Nebuchadnezzar and his advisors. Yet when you trust in Jesus' goodness rather than your own, he is pleased to be your high priest. He offers himself for you. And as the exalted Messiah, dwelling in God's heavenly court, he intercedes for you. And he invites you in. And you have access to God to bring your pleas for mercy and grace to him. He will help you. He will always give you mercy. He won't always answer your prayers exactly the way you ask him to. But he will give you the mercy you need and he will give you grace to help in your need. For as Paul writes, we do not know how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, for the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So if you don't know what to pray for, you pray anyway. He will hear you. He'll, he'll know how to answer your prayer just right. He will deliver you. Maybe not in the way you want or expect, but he will do it. For Paul continues, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And to be conformed to Christ is to suffer with him. Look, even if our suffering is light in this life, we all suffered death. We all died to ourselves to trust Jesus. And all of our bodies one day will die if he does not return first. But what does it say in Romans 8.16? We are conformed to Christ in his suffering. We inherit Christ through suffering. We are made like him. And if we are conformed to his image in suffering, God will turn it to conform us to his image in his glory. For as Paul writes, the perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. And so he adds, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. I don't know the results of your trials, but whatever happens, it will not be in vain. 
Because God will turn everything to make you like Jesus. Daniel was delivered from immediate death when God gave him the interpretation. And who knows, God may give you that same kind of immediate victory over your trials. But there is one thing that's certain, that he will give you victory over death and sin when he sends Jesus back. And you will be just like him. You will be perfect and sinless. And today, he gives strength to remain steadfast. He endured everything to the end. He drank the cup that the Father poured for him. And he too gives you strength to endure whatever life throws at you. And so you throw yourself on his mercy. I don't know whether he'll reveal a dream to you. But I know he will show you his mercy. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the mercy that you show us in Jesus. We thank you for the strength that he showed because he trusted in you. And so he endured the trial that was set before him and he despised the shame for the joy that was set before him. The joy of redeeming sinners like me. And so, Father, I pray that you will give us all strength to remain steadfast, whatever we face. We are confident that you will make us like Jesus. Amen. Let us take our tithes and offerings. Thank you.